You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the 28th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for downloading the podcast. Well, boys, your troubles are over now. Mine have just begun. With those words, and perhaps with a twinkle in his eye, Abraham Lincoln greeted some newspapermen the morning of Wednesday, November 7, 1860, the morning after his election as the 16th President of the United States of America. In the first days after Lincoln's election, there was celebration, to be sure, but there was also sobering news concerning the final shape of his victory. Lincoln was the first Republican elected as president, but he won with less than 40% of the popular vote, and with almost a million votes less than the combined total of his three opponents. Lincoln's triumph was due to the fact that he and his running mate, Hannibal Hamlin, won all of the more populous, free northern states— except for New Jersey, whose electoral votes would have to be split with Stephen Douglas. But by carrying the North, Lincoln netted 180 electoral votes, 28 more than the 152 needed to win. Ominously, though, Lincoln and Hamlin collected not one popular vote in 10 southern states. For months prior to the election, there had been rising agitation across the South at the growing likelihood that the Republicans would capture the White House. And now, with Lincoln's election a reality, a defiant spirit quickly spread to the Deep South, starting with South Carolina. Just two days after the election, the Charleston Mercury newspaper announced, The tea has been thrown overboard. The revolution of 1860 has been initiated. And yet, even as demands for disunion started to spread outward from South Carolina, it seemed as if President-elect Abraham Lincoln and many other Republicans failed to grasp the true gravity of the situation. Now, in their defense, Lincoln and other Northerners had heard the Southern threats before. In fact, they had heard them many times over the years. Southerners had used threats of disunion a dozen times before, but it had always been bluff, had always stopped short of any move toward actually breaking up the Union. And now many Northerners believe the same sort of posturing was happening in 1860, the mayor of Chicago declared it was, quote, the old game of scaring and bullying the North into submission to Southern demands, end quote. But this time, Southerners meant what they said. Lincoln's victory was greeted across the slaveholding South with indignation, fear, and defiance. The Richmond Inquirer charged that, quote, the Northern people, by a sectional vote, have elected a president for the avowed purpose of aggression on Southern rights. End quote. 
The New Orleans Crescent summed up the reaction of countless Southerners when it said, quote, The Northern people, in electing Mr. Lincoln, have perpetuated a deliberate, cold-blooded insult and outrage on the people of the slaveholding states. End quote. Beginning with South Carolina, state legislatures in the Lower South called for the assembling of special conventions to take their states out of the Union. Stoked by the fire eaters, secession fever spread across the Deep South, but up in Illinois, Abraham Lincoln believed that secessionists represented only a small minority of Southern sentiment. In the days following his election, the president-elect and most other Republicans continued to believe or to hope, the strong Southern talk was mostly bluff. But others were not so optimistic, and as anxiety over the prospect of disunion grew, Abraham Lincoln quickly found himself under relentless pressure to speak out about the future policies of his administration. But he refused, steadfastly maintaining a public silence in Springfield. You see, although it would be four long months before Lincoln would take the oath of office in Washington, D.C. on March 4, 1861, there was a 19th century tradition of the president-elect not speaking publicly before his inauguration. Beyond honoring that tradition, however, there was another reason Lincoln refused to break his public silence and issue a statement designed to soothe the South. Back in October... When these calls for a statement of some kind first surfaced, Lincoln had said, quote, What is it I could say which would quiet alarm? Is it that no interference by the government with slaves or slavery within the states is intended? I have said this so often already that a repetition of it is but mockery, bearing an appearance of weakness, end quote. Lincoln went on to say that he would have nevertheless been willing to repeat such statements, quote, if there were no danger of encouraging bold bad men who are eager for something new upon which to base new misrepresentations, men who would like to frighten me, or at least to fix upon me the character of timidity and cowardice, they would seize upon almost any letter I could write as being an awful coming down, end quote. And indeed, as historian James McPherson writes, points out, it's hard to see what Abraham Lincoln or the Republicans could have done to calm Southern anxieties, short of disbanding their party and pronouncing slavery a positive good. As a committee of the Virginia legislature put it, quote, the very existence of such a party is an offense to the whole South, end quote. Such thinking goes a long way toward explaining the rush to secession in the Deep South, even before Abraham Lincoln took office. It was not so much what Republicans might do as what they stood for that infuriated Southerners. One North Carolina congressman said, quote, No other overt act can so imperatively demand resistance on our part as the simple election of their candidate, end quote. It's interesting that while Abraham Lincoln in Springfield had maintained his public silence during the presidential campaign, which was another 19th century tradition, and would continue to maintain his silence in the time leading up to his inauguration, someone else had been speaking out. Back during the episode on the election of 1860, we promised we'd return to Stephen Douglas at some point, and this seems like a good time to do that. You guys will remember that in the months leading up to the presidential election, Douglas broke with tradition, and he went out campaigning for himself. Well, in his book, Battle Cry of Freedom, McPherson explains, quote, 
campaigning in Iowa when he learned that Republicans had swept the October state elections in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Indiana, Douglas said to his private secretary, Mr. Lincoln is the next president. We must try to save the Union. I will go south. Go he did, to Tennessee, Georgia, and Alabama, at some risk to his deteriorating health and even to his life. Douglas courageously repeated his warnings against secession. The whole North would rise up to prevent it, he said pointedly. I hold that the election of any man on earth by the American people, according to the Constitution, is no justification for breaking up this government. End quote. McPherson then points out that Southerners listened to Stephen Douglas, but they didn't hear him. Really, in the podcast up until now, we've painted Stephen Douglas in a somewhat negative light. We kind of have made him sound like a bit of a stinker. Yes, thank you. But here at this point, it's hard not to admire Douglas's pluck in going into the South and speaking out against secession. Well, but if you think about it, he had played a big part in helping make the mess in the first place, with a whole Kansas-Nebraska boondoggle, and then constantly pushing popular sovereignty as the best thing since sliced bread. So it only seems right that he'd make some effort to try and head off the oncoming disaster, even if it was too little too late. So our verdict on Stephen Douglas is that... Is that he was a bit of a stinker, but taking into account his last-minute efforts to head off secession, and considering his sincere, unqualified support of Abraham Lincoln after the election, Stephen Douglas did redeem himself somewhat at the end. And I say at the end, because he'll die here shortly in June 1861. But that's getting ahead of ourselves, so let's go back and talk about another one of the major players during the secession winter of 1860-1861. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We haven't really talked much yet about Democratic President James Buchanan in connection to the secession crisis, so let's go ahead and rectify that. First, some background on the 15th president might be in order. Like Lincoln, Buchanan was born in a log cabin, this one in Pennsylvania, in the year 1791. Buchanan graduated from Dickinson College in 1809 and then became quite wealthy as a lawyer. Like Scrooge McDuck wealthy? Mm, Probably not. But anyway, after eventually leaving his law practice, Buchanan then had a long legislative career, serving in the House of Representatives for 10 years, 
and then in the Senate for another decade. Under President Andrew Jackson, he was U.S. Minister to Russia. Under President James Polk, Buchanan served as Secretary of State. And then in the administration of President Franklin Pierce, he was the United States Ambassador to Great Britain. That last appointment turned out to be a major reason Buchanan was elected president in 1856. Because he was off at the court of St. James during the Kansas-Nebraska boondoggle, Buchanan wasn't tainted by that crisis. As a presidential candidate, therefore, Buchanan seemed to represent neutrality. He wasn't identified closely either as an opponent or as an advocate of the extension of slavery into the territories. But sadly, since he's from my home state of Pennsylvania, once he was in office, Buchanan proved to be a thorough doe-face, that is, a northern politician with southern sympathies. Knowing he owed his election to the support of southern Democrats, Mm -hmm. President Buchanan's tendency was to consistently knuckle under to pro-slavery interests. For example, we've talked previously about Buchanan's shameful support of the illegitimate pro-slavery Lecompton Constitution for Kansas, which led to his bitter intra-party feud with Stephen Douglas. And then in early December 1860, with Lincoln elected and secession fever sweeping across the Deep South, the lame duck president's annual message to Congress blamed the escalating crisis entirely on the North. Just before this, in late November, the fire eater Robert Barnwell Rhett had informed Buchanan that it was certain South Carolina would exit the Union within the next month and warned that it was in Buchanan's hands, quote, to make the event peaceful or bloody, end quote. Admittedly, the rush to secession in South Carolina permitted no easy resolution, but James Buchanan was rarely one to act decisively anyway. And so the president chose to address South Carolina's impending secession in his annual message to Congress. In keeping with the tradition established by Thomas Jefferson, Buchanan sent his address of December 3rd to Capitol Hill rather than delivering the speech himself. Back in the olden days, clerks usually read copies of presidential speeches to the separate House and Senate chambers. Exactly. Well, in Buchanan's message, he asked, what was the source of the present emergency? His answer, the immediate crisis arose from, quote, the incessant and violent agitation over the slavery question throughout the North for the last quarter of a century, end quote. To hammer home his point as to who was to blame for the approaching calamity, Buchanan said, quote, The long-continued and intemperate interference of the northern people with the question of slavery in the southern states has at length produced its natural effects, end quote. After establishing that the present emergency was entirely the North's fault, Buchanan then denounced secession as unconstitutional, but he defended the reasons for secession. He also announced his belief that as president, he had no authority to coerce seceding states to remain in the Union, and he asked the North to make concessions that every American knew would never be granted. The outraged Northern response to Buchanan's speech was swift. Senator Stewart mocked the president's claim that although secession was unconstitutional, he had no authority to halt it. Seward said Buchanan's message, quote, shows conclusively that it is the duty of the president to execute the laws unless somebody opposes him, end quote. Seward went on, pointing out that according to Buchanan, quote, no state has the right to go out of the union unless it wants to, end quote. Congressman Charles Francis Adams of Massachusetts, 
grandson and son of presidents, thought Buchanan's speech reflected the character of its author, quote, timid and vacillating in the face of slaveholding rebellion, bold and insulting toward his countrymen whom he does not fear, end quote. And then a Philadelphia newspaper declared, quote, Never was there a condition of public affairs so disgusting as under President Buchanan's administration. He is not only detested, but held in contempt, having done all in his power to deliver the nation to her enemies. End quote. And although you would think Southerners should have been overjoyed at the lame duck president's feeble response to the likelihood of disunion, but they strenuously objected to Buchanan's characterization of secession as unconstitutional. In fact, Senator Jefferson Davis of Mississippi promptly paid a visit to the White House to register his protests. With his December 3rd address to Congress, it was obvious James Buchanan was simply hoping that the climax of the escalating crisis could be delayed long enough for him to leave office and turn the government and its problems over to Abraham Lincoln. But sorry to say, as the final months of his administration ran out, neither the victorious Republicans in the North nor the secessionist fire-eaters in the South, were willing to grant James Buchanan a quiet exit. On December 17, 1860, South Carolina's secession convention met in the state capital of Columbia. The delegates were forced to flee that city, though, because of an outbreak of smallpox, but they reconvened December 20th in Charleston. Once they were settled in there, the convention made quick work of leaving the Union. The vote came at 1.15 that afternoon and was unanimous, 169 to 0. Someone took the time to mail the president-elect in Illinois a copy of the Charleston Mercury Special Edition, which bore the now-famous banner headline, The Union is Dissolved. Abraham Lincoln folded up that ill-omened gift and stored it away in his files, later taking it with him to Washington. Over the next several weeks, secession fever gained momentum across the Lower South. Six more slaveholding states, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas, issued calls for secession conventions of their own. Meanwhile, in Washington, Congress debated compromises that no longer seemed to matter. In his December 3rd message, James Buchanan had called upon Congress to work on formulating another great compromise plan, as Congress had done in the past when the specter of sectional conflict had reared its ugly head. Buchanan proposed a constitutional convention that would consider an amendment to protect slavery in the territories, and he also suggested the United States might purchase the Spanish colony of Cuba in order to admit it to the Union as a slave state. There were those in Congress who genuinely wished to avert disunion, so two committees were formed, one each for the House and Senate, to discuss Buchanan's proposals and to search for a compromise that might placate the secessionists and keep the Union together. On December 18th, John J. Crittenden of Kentucky rose in the Senate and offered a comprehensive package of constitutional amendments designed to remove slavery from federal jurisdiction for all time. The 73-year-old Kentuckian, an old-line Whig, held the seat once occupied by Henry Clay, and saw himself as Clay's heir as the architect of congressional compromise efforts. Crittenden's plan called for the adoption of six constitutional amendments, none of which, he stipulated, could ever be modified in the future. As Alan Gelsop explains in his book Fateful Lightning, quote, 
The Crittenden Compromise actually called for not one, but a series of constitutional amendments that guaranteed the following. The old Missouri Compromise line of 3630 would be revived and slavery would be forbidden in any state or territory north of the line and protected anywhere to the south. Slavery in the District of Columbia was to be protected from congressional regulation. Congress would be prohibited from interfering in the interstate slave trade. And Congress would compensate any slave owner whose runaways were sheltered by local northern courts or anti-slavery measures. Crittenden seriously believed that his compromise could win popular support, and he even urged Congress to submit it to a national referendum, end quote. Since it tilted heavily toward Southern interests, while the North would once again have to give way to slaveholders' concerns, the Southerners on the Senate Committee, led by Jefferson Davis, expressed a willingness to accept the compromise if the Republicans would do so. But the Republicans refused to do so. Out in Illinois, Abraham Lincoln may have been maintaining his public silence, but privately, behind the scenes, through visits that were paid to him by key Republicans, and through a continuous stream of correspondence that flowed from Springfield, the president-elect had been active and energetic in shaping the Republican response to the growing crisis. Despite growing support for the Crittenden plan, including the backing of some Republicans, Lincoln opposed it because it would extend the Missouri Compromise line across the country and permit slavery to expand into the West. Lincoln, aware that the escalating tension of the secession crisis, combined with the appeal of Crittenden's plan, would push some wavering Republicans toward compromise, wrote to Senator Lyman Trumbull and said, quote, let there be no compromise on the question of extending slavery. Stand firm. The tug has to come, and better now than any time hereafter. End quote. Several days later, Lincoln, again in his role as the Republican Party's national leader, wrote to Congressman Elihu B. Washburn and said, quote, Prevent, as far as possible, any of our friends entertaining propositions of compromise of any sort. Hold firm as with a chain of steel. End quote. And here we just wanted to say that we're aware that over the years, President-elect Lincoln has taken some knocks from a few historians for his public silence and perceived passivity during the secession winter of 1860-1861. But you know, it's amazing that from the moment he was elected, Abraham Lincoln was being tested. Even though he had yet to be inaugurated, and even though he as yet had no official power, by the end of December 1860, he was facing not only the reality of a shattered union, but also the awful possibility of civil war. As president-elect, before he took office, did he make some stumbles and fumbles while meeting that test, while trying to get a handle on the magnitude of the crisis facing the nation? Yes, but it's hard to fault the guy for those missteps. I mean, it's not as if anyone had ever had to deal with a national train wreck like this before. And so I think it's hard to fault him for his public silence after his election. As he himself pointed out, his positions on the relevant issues were already a matter of public record, and it's difficult to see why he would need to repeat them, except unless it would be to apologize for his election, or in some other way attempt to mollify a defiant South. The one time he did partially break his public silence by communicating through a Lyman Trumbull speech on November 20, 1860, that experiment of using a proxy 
was a dismal flop. Lincoln's clumsy reassurances, as given through Trumbull's address, satisfied no one. And then, even though he maintained a public silence, as we've already pointed out, he was working diligently behind the scenes to influence events. For example, Lincoln did try to reassure men he viewed as loyal Southerners, notably John A. Gilmer of North Carolina and Alexander Stevens of Georgia. Lincoln had counted Stevens as a friend back when both were Whig congressmen in Washington. So when Lincoln saw that Stevens had defended the Union in a speech to the Georgia legislature, the president-elect wrote to Stevens, saying that if the Southern people really suspected him of wishing to disturb their institutions, then they were unduly alarmed. But after offering that reassurance, Lincoln continued, quote, I suppose, however, this does not meet the case. You think slavery is right and ought to be extended, while we think it is wrong and ought to be restricted. That, I suppose, is the rub. End quote. Of course, that was the rub, but it was also more problematic than that. Lincoln's commitment to maintaining the Union was absolute, and in pursuit of that goal, early on, he was perfectly willing to accept slavery's continued presence where it already existed. But from the start, there was one thing Lincoln was not willing to accept, and that was any concession to the extension of slavery. In that regard, I think his words to Trumbull and Washburn, which were certainly meant to be shared with other key Republicans in Washington, I think they bear repeating. So listen again to Abraham Lincoln's determination as he urges, Let there be no compromise on the question of extending slavery. Stand firm. The tug has to come, and better now than any time hereafter. Prevent, as far as possible, any of our friends entertaining propositions for compromise of any sort. Hold firm as with a chain of steel. Hold firm as with a chain of steel. Stand firm. The tug has to come, better now than any time hereafter. To me, here we have a wonderfully clear picture of Abraham Lincoln's moral courage, because he knew very well that over the course of America's history, from the various earliest days of the Republic, the seriousness of the sectional crisis over slavery had ebbed and flowed, but the underlying tension had always been there, and would always flare up from time to time, and would be met by the North with yet another compromise to the interests of the slaveholding states. But with his election in 1860, Lincoln found the moral courage to draw a line and say, in essence, enough is enough. There will be no more compromise with slavery. And God bless him, Abraham Lincoln was willing to accept the responsibility for taking that stand, rather than passing the, the poisonous, divisive problem of slavery along to future generations of Americans so that they could struggle with it. Now, in 1860, would Lincoln receive high marks by today's standards for his attitude toward race relations? No. But still, down deep, Lincoln believed that the institution of slavery was completely incompatible with America's declared intent of being a land where all people are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among those rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so with his election in 1860 as the 16th President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln was unwavering in his resolve 
that at least on his watch, the stain of slavery would spread no farther across the face of America. Stand firm. The tug has to come. Better now than any time hereafter. Hold firm, as with the chain of steel. Abraham Lincoln has been criticized for those words, for scuttling congressional attempts at compromise in the secession winter of 1860-1861. But to us, and this is just our two cents worth, but we think those statements are some of the most courageous words ever spoken by an American president. While President-elect Abraham Lincoln was in Springfield, maintaining his public silence but working behind the scenes to shape the Republican response to events, President James Buchanan in Washington was walking a political tightrope. As much as Buchanan might have wished, he could passively let his term expire without having to take any decisive action with regard to the secession crisis, events in the South forced the lame-duck president to venture out onto that precarious tightrope. Starting in South Carolina, as the seceding states left the Union, they demanded, in accordance with their newly declared sovereignty and independence, they demanded the surrender of all federal property and installations in their territory. In most cases, like with customs houses or post offices or lightly guarded arsenals, this was accomplished quickly and with a minimum of fuss. But in other cases, such as where military posts or forts were involved, the problem was a bit trickier. In a few spots, the federal officers in charge of the military installations refused to surrender them to the secessionists. This occurred at Fort Pickens, which was located at the entrance to Pensacola Harbor in Florida, and where Lieutenant Adam J. Slimmer refused to surrender the fort. Another Army officer who refused to surrender was Major Robert Anderson, commander of the federal garrison at Fort Sumter, which was located smack in the middle of the harbor of the birthplace of secession, Charleston, South Carolina. The honorable actions of those two U.S. Army officers forced President Buchanan out onto that tightrope we mentioned before. Buchanan tried to perform a balancing act between, on one side, Southern and then Confederate demands that the forts be surrendered, and then on the other side, northern demands that he maintain possession of the federal properties. So Buchanan attempted to satisfy the North by showing that the U.S. government would not surrender the forts. At the same time, to avoid antagonizing the South, Buchanan assured them his intentions were non-threatening. And so with James Buchanan trying to walk that perilous tightrope, we think that's where we'll leave things for now. We'll spend the next episode looking at how Abraham Lincoln went about building his cabinet between his election and his inauguration. And then after that, we'll return to Charleston Harbor and take a closer look at the escalating crisis that revolved around the possession of Fort Sumter. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is... Lincoln, President-Elect, Abraham Lincoln and the Great Secession Winner of 1860-1861, by Harold Holzer. About Lincoln, President-Elect, Doris Kearns Goodwin said, This is a stunningly original work that casts completely new light on the most turbulent and critical presidential transition in American history. 
Holzer's superb narrative skill, along with his abundant use of colorful details, creates an atmosphere of such immediacy that the reader feels transported back to the great secession winter as an eyewitness to Lincoln's gifted leadership during this dramatic period. This groundbreaking book will take its place with the most valuable and indispensable works in the Lincoln canon. You know by now that you can find all of our book recommendations, as well as lots of other important and fascinating stuff, at the podcast headquarters, which is located on the World Wide Web at civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. We do want to remind y'all that the music at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used by permission of Spiritwood Music. We really hope y'all have already bought a song or two from Spiritwood Music on iTunes or Amazon. But if you haven't done that yet, we hope you'll do that soon. Not only because we know you'll really enjoy their music, but because it's a nice way to thank them for allowing us to use their great song on the podcast. Definitely. And probably the easiest thing to do on iTunes or Amazon is just to type Spiritwood Music in the search bar and their stuff should come right up on both sites. So thank you to those of you who do that for us, and do it for yourself. You'll enjoy their music. Uh, And as we close, we also want to thank you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.